The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and today we'll be looking at science and the upcoming Canadian federal election. And I have four panelists here with me. Uh, we'll start with John Dupuy, a science and engineering librarian at York University in Toronto. He blogs about libraries, science, and politics, sometimes all three at once, at Confessions of a Science Librarian. Good to have you back, John. Thanks. Great to be back. We also have Katie Gibbs, the co-founder and executive director of Evidence for Democracy, a national nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization that promotes science integrity and the transparent use of evidence in government decision-making. Welcome back, Katie. Thanks for having me. And with his first appearance on the show, we have Mike D'Souza. Mike is an investigative resources correspondent for Reuters, and he's based in Calgary. He focuses his work on the energy sector, its performance, and its relationship with government. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks for the invitation. And last, we have another newcomer to Science for the People. Until recently, Dr. Stephen Campana was a senior scientist at the Bedford Institute of Oceanography, where he worked for the last 32 years as the head of both the Otolith Research Laboratory and the Canadian Shark Research Laboratory. And he's now working as a professor at the University of Iceland. <laughs> Great to have you here, Stephen. A pleasure. So to set the stage, I'd like each of you to describe your perspective on the current state of science in Canada. I don't think it's looking very good, unfortunately. Uh, there's been a, a lot of policies over the past few years that have had done a few things. So we've seen fairly drastic cuts to science funding in Canada that has resulted in a lot of closures of important scientific institutions. Um, and then we've also seen policies that have really restricted the ability of our government scientists to communicate their work to the public. And additionally, we've seen sort of a reduced role for science and evidence in, in government policy decision making. So a number of policies that really uh, go against the best available evidence. Great. Well, not great, but next. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I work in a university. And the, I guess the situation in universities is a bit different from, I guess, that perspective on on government science. I think there's a lot of potential, but people are kind of insecure. They're not kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, there's still a fair bit of funding that's flowing through the Tri-Council. But I think there is a lot of concern that the federal government tends to want to have a lot more control over how that how their money gets spent and and and, and tends to have less less faith in kind of that traditional peer review uh process. And so there's a lot of there's a lot of movement towards funding of you know industrial partnerships and that's that kind of thing. That's where the emphasis is as opposed to uh having it more uh scientist controlled. I guess I would uh, follow up with that. I, I, I fully agree with John's perspective on this. There's sort of two uh, levels of science in Canada, two primary levels. Uh, one is the, the university-oriented and the other is a go government scientist. And uh, certainly the two are being treated very differently right now. So the perspective for government scientists right now is, quite frankly, bleak. I, and I, I don't think I'm overstating things. Uh, but I certainly don't see the, the same issues at play in the university sector. So with my uh, my various friends and colleagues in universities across Canada, 
Um, as John pointed out, you know, the, the funding seems to be, uh, it's there. It's always competitive, of course, but, uh, there's been no major cutbacks like there has been in the government science. And, uh, uh, you know, there's certainly been a shift in terms of a push towards applied science by, by the government right. for the universities. But on the government side, it's just cut, muzzle, and um, go away. From a journalist standpoint, um, I would say that we were seeing a couple of things. One is certainly a diminished capacity where if we're writing about stories, we're seeing that the the government of Canada scientists – uh, seem seem to be becoming a junior partner in 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 stuff that's being done because of budget cuts. There's just that diminished capacity, and they, you know, in terms of our ability to get access to information about what science the government is doing, um, there is quite significant challenges for us to find out to speak to the scientists and know what they're doing. And I'll give a couple of examples. Um, you know, we've seen in the news of the past week this this issue about about Volkswagen and um, and a trick or or you know their their efforts to cheat and uh, uh, hide some software in 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 their cars to fool regulators and the testing. Um, you know, we've seen in the past week the EPA has taken in the U.S. has taken quite a significant role in in explaining what is what has happened, what they discovered, what their investigation uncovered. Um, but when it comes to the Canadian side, we don't we don't have any access to the scientists who were involved in the testing of these cars. We don't know they're not coming forward to explain how they could have missed what, what had happened or what, uh, uh, what the company allegedly was using to, to fool the regulators. So, you know, that's, that's a significant, a significant thing. I think yesterday or earlier this week, the EPA was saying it was going to use a Canadian lab as, as part of its efforts to expand testing. Um, but we can't speak to anyone from that Canadian lab at, at Environment Canada to know exactly what they will do and what their plan is, uh, to, to look at what, uh, you know, to crack down on, on, on whether there are other, uh, automobile manufacturers that are doing similar things. Well, and just to make this really clear, I, I could not find a single science inclined, uh, person who felt like, the current federal government was good for science, uh, but I acknowledge that they may exist. So if if you are a scientist or you're in a science-related field and you think the federal conservatives have been good for science, I definitely welcome you with open arms to the comment section of this episode on scienceforthepeople.ca. So um, I, I, should, I should ask, uh, then how and why did we get to this point, folks? Well, looking at the, uh, the, the government side, Certainly, uh, it's been a, uh, a long journey to get here. Um, the project funding has declined, I think, pretty steadily over the last 15 years or so. So this is not a, a recent phenomenon in terms of direction. Uh, what, what's changed, uh, just in the last, and it's hard for me to be exact here, but on the order of, uh, eight years or so, uh, it's the, the rate of decline and the rate of change has, has, uh, uh, markedly steepened. So it's, uh, it's going downhill much more quickly than it, than it was before. And it's not just the funding that's been affected in these last eight years or so. It's been the policies, the, uh, the roadblocks, the hindrances that are being put up to basically stop government scientists from, from, from doing anything. 
uh, or, or at least doing as much productively as, as they were capable of doing before. So it, it's, uh, it's not a, it's not an overnight affair what's been happening. And, and to be fair to the current government, the, you know, some of those declines started beforehand, but there's, there's no question that, uh, under the current government, things have gotten much worse, much more quickly. Now, John, that's a question for you, I suppose, as well, because you have a, you're, you're doing a fairly thorough chronology. And by fairly, I mean horribly depressing chronology. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? When, when did this start to go so bad? Well, I think, you know, as, uh, as Steve said, it's been go, it's been happening for a long time. When I do talks on this, I actually start with, I te- what I, what I like to do, I like to start with some media quotes about, you know, climate change and muzzling and cuts and whatever, and then reveal that they're actually from the Chrétien Martin era. Right. Um, so this is actually, so these kinds of issues have been going on for a long time. But I think what we've seen in the last, you know, nearly 10 years now, and in particular in the last four years, is, is that really kind of blatant, obvious, above board, you know, uh, emphasis on these are the things that aren't so important to us. And, and things really, I, I would say things kind of really accelerated with the, the majority government, uh, from, uh, 2011, I guess it was. And in particular, about a year delay from the majority government. So there was, there, I guess there was, uh, or at least a year delay from, from where, when it, when it was obvious that things were happening. I guess it took, it took them a while to actually implement their plans and that the omnibus budget bill from uh, from 2011 or 12 uh, and again it just took a it took a while and so i would say in the last 3 years or so uh, there's been a real acceleration and you know not much of a inclination to even try and hide uh, what's going on yeah I, I would agree with that i think it certainly has been sort of brewing for many years and then in 2012 was sort of when it got it got so bad that it just, it really couldn't be, couldn't be ignored. Um, and I think what's interesting too, you know, looking at, okay, what is this government's record on science? One of the best, you know, sort of overall measures of how a country is doing is how much, um, science funding there is as a percentage of their GDP. And the OECD looks at this for all OECD countries. And the average for all OECD countries is 2.4%. And Canada is currently only at, I think, 1.6% around there. Um, so we're really quite far behind. I think we're in like 20th or 21st place, uh, which is pretty bad. And what's, what's even more alarming is when you actually look at the trends for almost every other country, the proportion that they spend on research and science is increasing over time. And Canada has been pretty much a continual decline for the past decade. So it's not just that we're not stacking up internationally, but we're also really one of the only, you know, one of the few countries that is, that is declining instead of increase. Um, and I think John's point that, you know, this isn't particularly new to this government is, is a good one. Um, you know, governments don't just sort of inherently support science and evidence-based decision-making as much as we would like them to. And, you know, I really think a lot of, this stems from the fact that we have never really had a strong sort of science association or science lobby in Canada. So if you look at the US or the UK, you know, they have many groups that have been active for for decades. You know, they have the AAAS in the US, they have CASE in the UK. Um, so they have these really powerful groups that 
you know, are sort of a strong voice for, for science and for scientists' interests. Um, and we don't have that in Canada. So we haven't really had anyone sort of putting the pressure on politicians to, you know, make sure that science is represented. And I would, uh, I mean, I would briefly agree with, with, with John in, in terms of this, this kind of a trend starting quite a while ago. And I mean, I, I would say that to some degree, governments around the world, um, do take efforts to control how information gets out. Um, there, there is, there has been a trend in the past 10 to 15 years, at least, of um, not only on issues of science, but in, in all sorts of issues that, that we cover as journalists, where governments will want to um, shut down interviews if, if they have the chance and respond to questions with emails. Um, and, and so this is a trend that I think, I mean, I used to see it a lot starting uh, about 10 to 15 years ago in out of U.S. government agencies, and then it kind of uh, got taken to a whole new level in, in Canada with what we've seen in recent years. I mean, the difference is, though, that um, this is something that they do from time to time in U.S. government agencies, but they don't shut down interviews and uh, the uh, capacity of scientists to speak freely in the same way. I think it's worth one of the things that I think interesting to compare the say Chrétien Martin era with the current era. I think it, for example, you know, with Chrétien Martin, so when science got cut, it was kind of cut by accident, right? Everything, you know, so their attitude was everything needs to be cut. So sorry, science people, you got to take a little bit of it, a little right. bit of it too. Oh, you know, and occasionally there would be somebody unusually inconvenient for them. And so they would muzzle that guy or, you know, so it was, you know, they, 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 they did, it's not like they had anything in particular against science. Whereas I think what we've seen from the current government is, is they do have something in particular against this kind of idea of people, of, you know, public knowledge and science and those kinds of things. Well, I think the difference is that previously sort of the default was that science and the scientists were open to the public and available for interviews and only in cases where it was particularly inconvenient, um, a, you know, a troublesome story that they didn't want out, then they would muzzle the scientist. Whereas now the default has really changed to being closed as a default. Um, you know, the, the policies have been changed really across the board, even for issues that aren't at all controversial. Um, they still, you know, journalists still have to go through this whole sort of media relations rigmarole um, and can't just contact the scientists directly. So it's gone from sort of an occasional muzzling to the default being, you know, scientists completely closed off from the public. Today on Science for the People, we're talking about science and the Canadian federal election. And we'll be back with more of that after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Desiree Shell, and we've been discussing science and the Canadian federal election. 
My expert panelists are Stephen Campana, who was previously the head of the Canadian Shark Research Laboratory, Katie Gibbs, Executive Director of Evidence for Democracy, Science Librarian John Dupuy, and Mike D'Souza, Investigative Resources Correspondent for Reuters. So now I'm wondering, this is something that we always sort of discuss on this show, uh, why should this matter to normal folks, to non-nerdy folks, to non-policy wonk folks? Uh, why, why, are these, why should we care what the Harper Conservatives' record on science is? Well, we're, we're talking about a few different things here, and I think each of them has a different reason why people should care. Um, you know, if you look at the muzzling issue particularly, I think this one, you know, out of all of them has resonated the most with the public. And for me, it's, I mean, it's a fundamental issue of our, of our democracy. You know, this is publicly funded information that we've paid for with our taxpayer dollars. Of course, it should be available to the public. Um, and I think that that, you know, that makes sense to people. Um, and people, you know, right wing or left wing resonate with that. And it really is about our democracy. We can't have a democracy unless we have an informed public. And we can't have an informed public if if this information isn't available to them. Um, I think the science funding is a little bit harder to, you know, get the public on board with, but I think it, you know, it does affect them, especially when we're talking about funding cuts for Environment Canada, Health Canada, you know, this is exactly the kind of you know, public interest research that is what, you know, keeps our food supply safe, our drinking water safe, makes sure that new medicines are safe. Um, and so it really, you know, provides that um, crucial service. And I think people, you know, people do understand that. I think also the, there's a certain um, opinion or, or there's, there's, there's a rising amount of, of fears and concerns within within the professionals or the scientists in the public service that were, you know, we can, we can see that from time to time when we do manage as journalists to speak to, to speak to some of them. But when they, when these conversations take place, they have to be kind of these cloak and dagger, um, you know, in a back room uh, or in a dark alley where, <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe not quite, quite that dramatic, but um, the scientists, if they want to speak to journalists, they, they have to go out of their way to, to do it kind of secretly. And we not only get the sense that they're afraid to talk about the work they're doing, but there's also a bit of a, a fear on their part in pursuing certain work that or research that might be inconvenient to the government. And a very simple example um, that I saw about a year ago, um, a scientist who was trying to do some new research on the oil sands and wanted to uh, present uh, or make a presentation at an international conference had to go through this, I, I think it was a 12-step process of approvals of different things that she had to go through in order to be able to present at this conference. So when these kind of steps, if a scientist has to go through all of these kind of steps, they probably, I, I would think, um, you know, for anyone in any, any, in any type of job, you probably have a feeling where someone is watching everything you do. If you say the wrong thing in, the type of research you want to do, suddenly you're, you're, you're going to self-censor yourself and, 
and and take an approach where you're not sure if you should proceed with this type of work because one of your managers um, who uh, is trying to please their political master uh, or masters is is afraid to 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 give a green light for you to proceed with that. So this changes not only their ability to speak freely, but it it affects the the ability of them to do important research in the first place. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I like to emphasize when talking, you know, to people about why they should care about this stuff is often often issues that don't seem to be about science actually have kind of a science aspect to them. You know, even when you look at the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, now I I wouldn't claim to be anywhere near an expert on the Middle East or you know, what's uh, what's going on in Syria, but I think it's it's fairly well established that climate change, uh, and in particular an extended drought in Syria a few years ago, was one of the prime destabilizing factors in in what's going on there. And so, in a sense, if you're talking about the the Syrian refugee crisis, there there is an aspect of that that you know really we need to know more about climate change. We need to know more about about how to stop it, what the effects are, how to adapt. You know, even the Department of Defense in the United States has uh has climate change on their radar and they they really see it as a as a destabilizing force in the world and and they've even referred to it as a threat multiplier when you when you throw climate change into an existing tense situation it just it makes it worse and i think that's why people should care all the all the you know there there aren't all the issues we look at you know that that people think are important in the in the election that are things that are galvanizing people they all have a lot of influences and 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 you know science is one of the things that that kind of is in there with a lot of those uh apparently non-science issues you know when you mentioned the the US and the the Pentagon came out with this report about uh about a year ago on on climate change and the international impacts and and I remember at the time journalists were trying to get the Canadian military to comment on this and and you know they weren't giving line email response and I had subsequently done some access to information requests to find out what they were saying behind the scenes and whether they had been looking at this and and I mean they had um, but but the problem was they are essentially following the U.S. on this. Um, you know, it is it is the U.S. that's leading this. I guess it's it's not encouraged for people to make this an issue in 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 in, in the Canadian military. They used to have a group that was studying um, some of the security issues that um, Canada would face in the coming decades. I, I think it was an Army 2050 or something like that uh, was the name of a, of a special think tank within the military that um, they produced a report. Um, and, and, and once that report came out and warned about the dire consequences for international security, uh, the group was shut down. Um, so, um, you know, in the case of the most recent work they've done, or, or in, in at least trying to communicate or engage with the U.S. in what the U.S. is 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 pushing for, you know, area, um, you know, issues like like their navy is at risk uh, from from rising sea levels and all the installations they have on 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 the northeast are um, potentially threatened by 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 climate change. Uh, so, you know, from the Canadian standpoint in in this issue, 
if if Canadians want to find out uh, whether the Canadian military is looking at these issues, they have to do it through access to information requests. And even at that, if if you know when we do this, they deliberately delay. I mean, there there were delays of I think it was about three months that it took them to release a three-page document or, or something like that, we had to file a complaint. And, and you know, they were in a state of what's in, you know, legal terms, a state of deemed refusal because they had deliberately delayed release of, of, of these records showing that at least they acknowledge there is a serious problem here. I think there's, a, there's a, another issue as well. Uh, certainly the idea that the tax dollars that the Canadian public is paying for to, to fund this research, you know, having that research hidden from view is a, an ethical issue. But, it, but I think it goes beyond that. I, I know certainly in talking to a number of people that are not scientists, uh, their question is, what is being hidden? What, what is happening that uh, the government is trying to keep hidden? That uh, could be of concern to me, John Q. Public, right. and 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 you know uh, there are some things that are being hidden here that are of a definite concern or of, at least of interest to the public, and and two instances come to mind that are actually very recent. Uh, one of them is that a, a geophysicist colleague of mine uh, who's involved in the ongoing survey of the Arctic, the Arctic Ocean as part of this unclosed procedure, which is basically the law of the sea. The idea that all of this area to the to the north, including the North Pole, that right now lies in international waters. There's a number of countries, including Canada, that are trying to extend their own undersea borders to to claim a portion of this because the thought is that there's billions of, of dollars of resources there, and there probably is. And, you know, Canada, uh, in terms of doing the the geophysical and scientific work to to make their claim has actually been one of the top ones. It's one of the few areas of science that's been funded in the last few years at, in governments. And yet, um, as soon as the election was announced, suddenly uh, all of these geophysicists were told they were not allowed to communicate to their scientific colleagues in other countries or to the public about some of the the information they were collecting, including collaborations that they were they had underway. So it was actually stifling their ability to continue the work towards making the case for Canada to to acquire this undersea resource. So we could be talking about loss of substantial amount of money because of this uh, government-imposed silencing on these scientists, not just with the media, but with other scientists. And, I was and that's going, pretty bad. I agreed. And I think that's that's something that we don't talk about enough, the economic impacts or the potential economic impacts. Um, I'm thinking specifically about uh, deciding to discontinue the long-form census. Uh, that has obvious scientific ramifications, but it, uh, from what I understand, it's also impacting new business development and expansion. Oh, for sure. I, I have many colleagues uh, at York. You know, I have colleagues in the library whose main job it is to uh, facilitate access to to that kind of statistical information it's hugely important for entrepreneurs um and in fact one of the things we teach students in say engineering or business is is how to access that data how to use that data how to use that data to you know to do uh product research to do market research it's uh it's really important and and what's happened is with the there's all these census dead areas in canada now that right. never used to exist before 
because when the census was mandatory, um, they got, I think, you know, 70, 80%, whatever it was, uh, reply rates. But now that's, but now there's been many areas where, in particular, fairly low, uh, low popula- population density areas where the response rate goes below the level at which they can report. And so now if you look at a map that has, then there's a, some of my library colleagues, uh, actually created a map. I'll dig it up and we can put it on the website Wonderful. Uh, that shows, that shows all of the dead areas. And it's, it's quite frightening how much of the country, geographically speaking, is, are, are these kind of census dead areas where the, the voluntary census just doesn't get a good enough response rate to be able to report. I think too, the, the economic impacts don't just extend to businesses not having that information. You know, so many, you know, municip- municipalities and school boards uh, use census information to make informed decisions about you know, where should we put a new school? Where should we put a new hospital? And so if you think of the fact that now, you know, those decisions are going to be made with less information and more based on guesswork, um, that's a huge amount of money that could potentially be wasted by just not being able to make those decisions actually based on on evidence. Um, and that really goes for all of the policies that that government that governments make. You know, that's really why having ev- having policy decisions be based on the best available evidence is so important because that's when the policies have the highest likelihood of actually meeting their objectives and doing what what they intend to do um i think another longer term economic impact is that we haven't really discussed explicitly is the the shift away from sort of basic curiosity driven research and that's been a huge part of of the change that we've seen to science in Canada is that even of the existing funding, both within government, uh, the changes we've seen to NRC, and um, within academic research funding, we've definitely seen a shift away from funding um, this sort of you know basic research that is not uh, very explicitly targeted. And you know while that might make sense economically in the short term, the problem is that you know history has shown us that most of the the huge discoveries that you know have have changed our lives and been huge economic drivers um actually have come about through basic research you know whether it's the the internet or gps or things like velcro you know most of these huge discoveries actually came from just funding you know basic research um and so we're not we're no longer sort of funding this this research that is a huge economic driver over over longer time periods. This is uh, actually being a huge issue from within government too. So you know, with my my uh, years in in government science, initially we were told that we should be splitting our time fifty percent research and fifty percent doing fish stock assessments, which is very much applied work. And then uh, that changed about. Uh, Ten years ago or so, we were told that uh, we couldn't really afford the research side and just focus on the applied side. And then in the in the more recent years, the the funding was just cut off altogether, so it became a non-issue unless you could uh, find something to do that didn't cost money. You actually didn't do anything at all. Okay, so what what is behind all this? There's does Stephen Harper hate science? <laughs> did did he have a bad experience with a science teacher? 
unfortunately, while he was way too young, it, it doesn't sound like that's the case. So, so what is behind this then, in your opinion? Please engage in rampant speculation. <laughs> well, you know, I actually don't, you know, I don't think that Harper is uh, specifically anti-science. Right. You know, there has been a lot of, um, theories behind this, you know, some sort of a hidden religious agenda or something like that. And, and I actually don't think that's the case. I think it's, I think it's as simple as this government came in with a very strong ideology and a very strong mandate of what they wanted to do. And, you know, they've been very open about this. It's, you know, making Canada an energy superpower, um, being tough on crime, etc. And so, you know, they knew what they wanted to do. And they just sort of see science and evidence as potentially inconvenient and getting in the way of these policies that they've decided they want to push whether they're based on the best evidence or not. I actually agree with uh, what you're saying, Katie, but but not to the point of the rationale. I think I think they're actually afraid of science. I think the um, the reason is as you described. That is that they have their strong agenda, but they're very concerned that if science would be done, that it would actually show that their agenda is not the correct way to go. And so, for that reason, I think they are actually at the point where they are actively discouraging the science. I don't think it's a um, you know, a byproduct or uh, collateral damage, if you will. I think they are actively discouraged science because they think it will uh, stop them in their tracks. And, you know, they would prefer to go with their their faith-based, and I don't mean religious faith, but their mm-hmm. um, their ideology in terms of what they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they, they don't want the facts to get in the way of that. Yeah, and I do agree with that. It's essentially, you know, they came in knowing exactly what they wanted to do. And so it's sort of like, you know, what's the point of funding research that is just going to tell us we shouldn't be doing this? You know, we're going to do it anyway. So, you know, why let, why have these pesky facts get in the way of our plan? And and I think, and I'll agree, it's once you think to yourself, oh, it's all about energy superpower. When you go, you know, for example, my crazy list, when you, when you go through that list, all of a sudden, like 95% of them, you can just check off. Oh yeah. Energy superpower. Oh yeah. Energy superpower. Oh yeah. Energy superpower. It's, it's actually, you know, it's so yeah, it's, it's that kind of surrendering of the government function to the, to the priorities of. Uh, the oil and gas industry to a, to a large extent. I mean, and then there's that 5%, which is just kind of let's be jerks about this. Uh, <laughs> if I can be, you know, there's, there is a certain, you know, like at one point they didn't, you know, there was like some sort of Canada arms celebration and they, they didn't invite Mark Garneau because of course he's, you know, he's <laughs> a liberal MP. So, and so there, you know, and there's some, there's some ridiculous stuff like, some of the changes to the some of the cosmetic changes to various of the like the environment canada websites and you know closing of these kind of you know and some of them are just stupid penny pitching and there so there's a fair bit of middle finger to scientists as to science people as well because they can because there's that kind of you know if you had to pick a hockey player that represented the harper approach it would be gordy howe right because elbows up in the corner if you're not looking he's going to knock all your teeth out mike i'm curious as to your perspective on this whole energy superpower perspective uh-huh well like if i if i take a step back and go go to some of the 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 issues or the 
areas that have been cut. In in some cases, there are you know there's a desire to control budgets and uh, to cut down on spending, um, and where you know there are there are things that are being cut. Um, you know, perhaps I don't know by accident is the right word, um, but where it, it's just a matter of budget cuts. There's there's other areas where we know that specific areas of research, if you take like the experimental lakes area, which was uh, probably going to be an important area to look at uh, in the future, um, the concerns about, about water pollution from, from, from the oil sands affecting, affecting communities. I, I think in, there's cases like this where we, uh, we have strong evidence that the decisions to make the cuts in areas like that came directly from cabinet. And, and the way we get that evidence is, or, or suggestion that it is from cabinet is because when we, uh, when we request information, uh, it's tightly controlled about the explanation of why it happened. If we do an access to information request, uh, to find out more about the cuts in this area, it comes back with, with, with parts of it censored using a section of the access to information law that allows uh, the government to censor or withhold cabinet secrets. Right. So if it was made at the cabinet level, those decisions, um, we can't see uh, the details of that, but we can see though, this, this is what, this is the excuse the government is, is using to withhold the information. Um, at Environment Canada, when it was in its deficit reduction plan, um, in this would have been in 2011 or 2012, um, you know, we, we saw some briefing notes that were released at the time showing that the cuts that they were doing, um, at one point they consulted communications staff, the media relations staff to get strategic advice on what areas can we cut that the public won't notice or that the public won't be outraged about. And they tried to find or pinpoint, you know, not based on what was the best thing to do, but try to figure out the stuff they could get away with cutting without the people being able to understand what was being cut. So uh, that is, you know, it's, it's, it's the decision-making process was, you know, some, some would have said, at the time, it was a bit backwards because it wasn't based on trying to improve efficiency. It was based on uh, just trying to get rid of stuff without people realizing in the public what was what was at risk. This is Science for the People, and we're talking science and the Canadian election. And we'll be back with more of that after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People and my panelists on today's Let's Talk About the Horrifying State of Public Science in Canada episode are Mike D'Souza, Investigative Resources Correspondent for Reuters, Stephen Campana, previously the head of the Canadian Shark Research Laboratory, Science Librarian John Dupuy, and Katie Gibbs, Executive Director of Evidence for Democracy. 
Okay, so has any of this uh, become an issue to voters in the upcoming federal election? Or is it still mostly, you know, researchers and journalists and librarians <laughs> that are paying attention? It really has actually <laughs> much. So, I mean, this is, you know, something Evidence for Democracy has been actively trying to make happen. You know, we're really trying to make science more of an election issue than it's ever been before. And honestly, even I am quite surprised at just the extent to which it's it's resonating with people. Um, you know, I've heard from a number, there's been a number of news articles about, you know, quips um, from people saying, you know, I'm going to end the war on science, getting the loudest applause of the night at local debates to, you know, other candidates saying that the muzzling issue is the top concern that they're hearing at the door. Um, and even, you know, McLean's just a few days ago put out some of the, some interesting results from this sort of, um, policy tool that they have. It's called the, the face-off tool where, you know, sort of like vote compass, people go to their website and you're presented with two policies and you click which one of the two you would want. And I think a surprise to everyone, um, it was a science issue that came out as the top policy that had the highest amount of support. Um, and interestingly, it was a policy around making publicly funded research available to the public. And another interesting phenomenon, and I agree 100% with, with Katie, I, I've been actually really pleasantly surprised by how active an issue uh, science has been in the campaign. But, you know, when you when you look at the leaders debates, they, there hasn't been that much about science. I mean, you, usually they can talk about science via talking about pipelines. Right. But it's kind of interesting. When you look at the debates out there, there haven't been that many debates that have been spontaneously organized by grassroots communities that have invited candidates. But two of the ones that have happened really recently have been about science. One at the University of Sherbrooke in Quebec, where they actually got a conservative to show up. Unbelievable. Wow. The debate is online. It's about two and a half hours. I wasn't able, it was during the middle of the day, so I wasn't able to listen to the whole thing. Uh, the conservative, you know, it was all, it was all about the talking points, of course. But then there was also the one, uh, in Victoria, where they, they didn't have a conservative. They just had, uh, uh liberals, NDP, and Greens. Again, you know, a grassroots organized debate of candidates, of the local candidates, some local candidates on science. It was amazing. The passion and interest. The, the local candidates were super well informed, very focused, very knowledgeable, uh, really looking to the future. One of the nice things about not having the conservative there, a big difference between the, the, the French one and the English one. The nice thing about not, oddly, the nice thing about not having the conservative there is they were able to focus on the future instead of the past. Right. And, and I, I, the fact that those two de debates were organized, that I found really gratifying. And again, if there wasn't that kind of passionate ground roots interest, and both, both debates were, you know, really well attended, people watching online, it was, uh, that was, uh, you know, a great, a great sign of, of how, of, of how seriously people are taking the issue. Katie, uh, Evidence for Democracy actually put out a science questionnaire for candidates, correct? Yes. And so how's, how does that look? How did the responses look? 
Well, they look pretty good. I mean, across the board, um, there was a, you know, sort of general commitment from the NDP liberals and Green Party um, for a few things that we were looking for. So, you know, they've, they've all sort of committed broadly that they would unmuzzle government scientists. They've all committed to creating sort of a new um, sort of science watchdog or science advisory body within government. So, you know, sort of bringing back the the chief science advisor position that we had briefly in Canada um, that was eliminated in 2008. The one thing that we're not really seeing a lot of is um, concrete funding commitments. Um, and, you know, not surprisingly, the, you know, parties um, probably try to keep those to a minimum. So the Liberals have committed to about $25 million in funding for national parks research, um, as well as reversing funding cuts for government ocean science and monitoring. And the Green Party has actually had the most sort of um, funding commitments, proposing $75 million to annually to hire back scientists at Environment Canada, Health Canada, and Fisheries and Oceans. Um, and so far, no uh, funding commitments from the NDP. So there was uh, one thing that uh, a, a recent trip that I made that was kind of enlightening for me. I was traveling uh, across the country uh, to Vancouver, and I was lucky enough to get bumped up into business class. And I found myself sitting beside a fairly high-profile MP from another party. I won't I won't say which one. And we ended up get, talking about this particular issue for most of the flight. And uh, this person was uh, was very well informed on on much of what was going on, and uh, at one point he he frankly admitted that uh, if his party got into power, that it is probably not economically possible at this point to restore all the the scientific funding that has been cut in the last ten years or so. Um, he certainly made it clear that there would the the uh, the cuts would be stopped, and that there would certainly be some changes, some improvements. But um, we've we've actually sort of so, fallen so far down the rob- rabbit hole; it's not possible to climb all the way out right now. And I, I, you know, to hear this from coming from another party, another political party, was it, it sort of made me realize that even from the outside, it's uh, it's we've come a long ways down. So it's mm-hmm. um, I guess we have to be realistic in terms of if there is a change of government, it's probably not going to return everything to the way it was, say, fifteen years ago. Yeah, and I think that's a really a really good point. And you know, if even if you look historically, you know, new governments, you know, almost never do they actually undo what a previous government did. You know, you're really starting from a new baseline, um, which is unfortunate. And you know, realistically, one of the things this government has done has you know essentially reduced you know by lowering taxes and the GST, they've reduced the amount of money that is coming in to the government. And so that just means that there is less money available for all these things. And so it is going to be very, very hard for any future government to, you know, to redo, uh, to rebuild science in Canada. And it's, you know, electing a new government, while I think it would be, you know, hopefully it will present a, a turning point for science in Canada, it's by no means going to mean that the work is is all of a sudden done. Part of the problem is that a lot of this research um, requires very, you know, fancy infrastructure. 
Um, you know, we're actually talking about like buildings and equipment. And part of the problem is that it costs way more. And once these programs have been cut, actually restarting them is way more expensive than it would have just been to keep them going, right? Once you've already made all these initial investments in them, the annual operating budgets are, are usually fairly small. But once they've actually gotten to the point of, you know, being cut and dismantled, restarting them is going to require a much larger investment than it, it would have just cost to keep them going. Yeah, and Tom Duck made a really good point in Silence of the Labs about, uh, about his lab, when his lab was shut down. The, the true resource in those labs is the, are, are the people. And, you know, what he said was, is, is, you know, he was employing all these world-class experts in their fields. When they got let go, they found other jobs and they're not going to come back, right? They're mm -hmm. in their new, they're in their new careers. They're in their new positions. If you wanted to restart that program, all that expertise is gone. And, mm -hmm. and I think a, a really good example of that is also, if I, if I may, you know, ride one of my own hobby horses is uh, the fisheries and oceans uh, libraries, right? Um, once the once the staff are fired, once the spaces are repurposed, once the materials are discarded, uh, no matter how unique those materials were, you know, there's no going back. You you can't, and that's that's a question that people ask me all the time, right? When you look at the at the damage that the government has done to the federal library infrastructure. For the most part, there's no, there's no going back. It, it would just, it's, it's just impossible. The, the capacity is destroyed. You know, there's other things besides the funding though. I, I certainly agree with what's being said in terms of the, the, the funding not being able to be returned, but there's a number of uh, bureaucratic and policy oriented roadblocks being put in place in the, in recent years that would be easy to reverse. And I, I'm thinking of two examples. I mean, one is certainly the, the muzzling aspect. Uh, that, that just takes the stroke of a pen to, to allow government scientists, for instance, to talk freely to the media about their published research. I'm not talking about, uh, you know, talking about, uh, government policy or, or national policy or anything, just about their own research, something that they're well suited to do. And the second is some of the extreme restrictions on travel that allows scientists to communicate among themselves and to improve their science. And and now there's such a Byzantine uh, hierarchy of approvals required. Very often you have to go through at least four steps for travel, even to something that's only a, an hour's drive away, for instance, that, that can take a, a full day. And uh, for air travel, very often the, the approval takes so long to get that the scientists, when they finally get the approval, if they get it, uh, ends up having to buy a full fare ticket, which costs far more than if they had just been given, you know, approval with through normal procedures, uh, you know, at some time in the past. So, so the travel restrictions right now are so bad that it's actually costing the government more than if they had the old policy in place. And things like this, the, these were policies put in place by whoever, Treasury Board or the Prime Minister's office. But uh, they they would could quickly be corrected and and turned into a far more logical system. I do agree that in in theory the muzzling issue could be fixed quite quickly, uh, and certainly it would be quite easy for a new government to put in place a new communications policy. I do worry though that you know as Mike alluded to earlier that the the culture now within government scientists is is so dire that there really is this. 
um, sort of a growing problem of self censorship. Um, and I do, I do worry that even if a new policy, you know, a new government was brought in and they brought in a new policy, you know, I don't think that the culture would change overnight. Um, I think that it is going to be a bit harder to get it to a point where government scientists feel comfortable um, once again sharing their science with the media and the public. Not to mention the fact that one of the only staffing growth areas in the federal government has been communications specialists. So it really, uh, is that the case? Yeah. So for sure, I think that that uh, that uh, job classification grew something like. 50% over the 10 years. And so there, there's, to, to the extent that they've destroyed other capacities, they've kind of created a muzzling infrastructure. And so I guess, yes, it, the, the challenge, the challenge of disassembling that new muzzling infrastructure, like Katie says, is, is going to be a real challenge. It's a change in culture. I respectfully disagree here, I guess. Um, you know, heading up the shark research lab, uh, there was always a lot of media interest in sharks. And so I had a, a lot of contacts there. And, you know, to, to take a, a fairly recent example, there was an incident, um, when was it? I think two years ago down in the United States where some great white sharks were, were following a kayaker in a, or a canoeist in, in the ocean. It had a beautiful picture there. And there was another one where another shark attacked um, one of the swimmers, you know, something that happens infrequently, but it happens every year. And so I was asked to go on, um, on CTV for, you know, just to talk about the situation in the States. And, you know, from a, from a government science point of view, it was, it was fluff. There, there are no implications for, for Canadian science or for Canadians. It was purely, uh, you know, a, a general interest perspective on sharks in another country. And, um, blithely, because I had, been doing quite a few interviews lately. I just went ahead and assumed I would get permission after the fact. And as it turned out, I got uh, formally disciplined for, for doing this without approval. You know, that's something that I think would change and could be changed despite the, you know, the increase in the communications people. If they were told that, you know, this type of thing should be allowed, that, uh, you know, they should be applying their skills to, to looking for, um, policy oriented interviews rather than fact based ones then, you know, this is the type of thing I think could be addressed fairly readily. I think another thing that could change if, if, if parties, um, if parties form government that, that, uh, well, if there's a change in government, um, cases that we have seen in the past, uh, even in the past year where it looks like senior managers will change the conclusions of research, um, because because they find it's inconvenient like and I can think of the of uh, the case of the uh, the western chorus frog in in, in Quebec uh, where um, you know scientists at Environment Canada who are experts on 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 that species and the threats to that species um, had warned that a real estate development project was a direct threat and somehow, uh, that warning changed into a recommendation from, uh, from, from a manager that there was no problem at all. Uh, when research is altered like that, um, you know, another example, the concerns over the beluga habitat from the, the proposed terminal on Energy East, um, you know, it, it, in these cases, it took legal action and, uh, groups seeking court injunctions to get the evidence to come to light and that 
led um, the government to change or, you know, reverse course, you know, we could see that if um, the other opposition parties are serious about correcting or addressing these problems, that this sort of thing, it shouldn't happen in the future. And it, you know, uh, groups shouldn't have to be resorting to court action to uh, get access to the real science. Okay, so I caught some cautious optimism there. Can Is that what we're going with? <laughs> cautious optimism that that all is not lost? We can change this around, if not quickly? And, you know, not everything that happened in the last 10 years has been bad. Oh, do tell. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, from the librarian perspective, right, certainly I was gratified by, by the tri-agency open access policy. It's not perfect, but it certainly, on the surface, is the kind of thing that you wouldn't think this government would be particularly interested in. But yet the tri-agencies were free to proceed. It got delayed at various points, but they were essentially free to proceed and to and to create and implement the policy. Uh, there's a draft data man- management plan policy in the pipeline as well. There's um, an open government data movement, which, while flawed, is creating kind of an open data infrastructure that could become something really good, right? And that and that is, you know, again, it's very it's very new. It's right at the beginning, but it's it's creating that kind of infrastructure and expectation that that can grow and become and become something really significant. And, you know, even we talk a lot about that, you know, uh, pure research versus applied research. Um, so, so one of the big beneficiaries of that has been MyTax, which uh, arranges uh, industrial uh, internships for grad students and postdocs, you know, which is a good thing, right? It's a good thing. Most people that do graduate work in most, most people that do graduate work in science don't end up in academic positions. So if you have an infrastructure that will connect people doing math or physics or whatever with, with jobs outside, with, with, with industry, with NGOs, right? They create those connections. I think, I, you know, I think that's, that's something that's really valuable. And so these kinds of things, and, you know, my tax wasn't created by the conservatives, but certainly it's been one of their, the kind, one, you know, it's been something that's done really well under them because it's easy to talk to it's easy to make that link between science and industry but it's not a bad thing i mean it what you want is balance right it's been overbalanced towards the uh industry focused science but that doesn't mean stuff like my tax is a bad idea no and i think that's a very good idea the balance of industry and science And for once, you've left it on an optimistic point, John, so I'm going to end the interview here. Thanks very much to all of you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks very much. You're welcome. Thank you. And that was Katie Gibbs, Mike D'Souza, Stephen Campana, and John Dupuy. And we'll link to all of them and their respective organizations on our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. Also linked to on our website, our Twitter and Facebook, if you want to keep up with us on social media, and iTunes, where you can listen to all of our newest episodes or go back in time and check out the archives. You could also click the link to our new Patreon account, where you can help support the show and earn our deepest and most heartfelt appreciation, as well as rewards that aren't available anywhere else. That's it for us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week 
on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.